Welcome, guys, to our Best of Patreon Volume 2. Thank you all for the continued support over the years. And if you like what you see in this video, then consider supporting us over on Patreon. Every week over there, we're digging deeper and darker into stories and getting into details that we simply aren't allowed to post over here on the regular channel. Hope you guys enjoy it. Number 5. Michael Sandy Even in a free country, the difficulty of being in a minority group is real. Although each individual is granted equal rights, issues of discrimination and hate still arise. So was the case with 29-year-old Michael Sandy, an IKEA employee who identified as both black and gay. Sandy's tragic story began with a dating site for gay men, where he met 20-year-old Anthony Fortunato. What he didn't know was that Fortunato was the mastermind of a group of young men who were looking for a victim to rob. The other three men in the group were 19-year-old John Fox Jr., 20-year-old Aya Sharav, and 17-year-old Gary Timmons. Sandy and Fortunato then exchanged emails about having sex, after which they set up a meeting place in Plum Beach, which is in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, on the evening of October 8, 2006. The victim first met Fox when they drove together toward Howard Beach, where the rest of the gang was waiting. According to witnesses, the men approached Sandy's car and began rifling through it. Sharov then pulled the black man from inside and started to punch him. Terrified, the victim broke loose and ran for his life. He was seen dashing along the highway, desperately calling for help on his phone. However, Sharav caught up with him and pursued him as he jumped over the guardrail. The attacker then punched him again, forcing him into the middle lane where he was struck down by an oncoming vehicle. Sandy was rushed to a nearby hospital, but was unconscious upon arrival. He was then put on life support and remained in a coma for five days. Unfortunately, he failed to ever wake up, forcing his family to make the difficult decision of removing him from the machines that were keeping him alive. He passed away on October 13, 2006. Meanwhile, the four young men were summoned for questioning and then arrested. Sharav, who was the only one accused of assaulting the victim, got 17 and a half years in prison for his crimes. Fortunato got 7 to 21 years and Fox 13 to 21 years. Timmons, who testified against his accomplices, received a plea deal and got only four years in jail. All counts were as hate crimes for targeting a black man in the gay community. Since then, everyone but Sharav has been released. Timmons in 2010, Fortunato in 2015, and Fox in 2017. Although the story of Michael Sandy is violent and tragic, the strange part is that it didn't cause a huge stir in either the community or the country. This gives rise to the question, is it because he was black or gay, or perhaps both? Or was it because people believe he had it coming by meeting strange men online? We have no concrete answers to these sad questions, 
And all we can say for now is that Sandy met an unfortunate fate in his quest for love and a connection. Number four, Sarah Johnson. Bellevue is a town in central Idaho that offers a suburban rural mixed feel. It was a town that, until 2003, had no homicide cases in the past 10 years, making its inhabitants feel safe. That is, until the case of the Johnson family erupted and shocked the entire world. On a September morning in 2003, a resident in Bellevue called 911 to report gunshots being fired at the Johnson's house. The call was made when their neighbor's daughter, Sarah, came over and asked them for help, saying that her parents had been shot. When police arrived at the scene, they found Diane Johnson shot to death in her bed. Alan Johnson's dead body was discovered next to it. Blood was splattered everywhere, and the detective described it as one of the most violent scenes he had ever witnessed. The murder weapon was a 264 caliber rifle, which belonged to Mel Spiegel. He was a tenant at the Johnson's guest house, which was adjacent to the main home. However, Spiegel was nowhere to be found. Since there were no signs of a break-in or a robbery, Spiegel became the prime suspect. However, within hours of the murder, investigators found him in Boise, Idaho, 150 miles away. He also had an alibi. He had been spending the entire weekend with his family, and his alibi cleared out. He told investigators about a person they should look into, a young man named Bruno Santos. Santos was a 19-year-old illegal immigrant who was dating the Johnson's daughter, Sarah. He was associated with a number of drug-related crimes, and apparently he was Sarah's first love. Investigators found out about a confrontation that happened before the murders. Alan, together with his brother-in-law, had warned Santos to stay away from his daughter or they would call the police. Sarah, of course, was not happy about the incident. Despite the warning, Santos defied Alan and still continued meeting his daughter, even as going far as having sex within the family's home. This made Santos a prime suspect since he had been inside the house. He had knowledge, access, and opportunity. However, the police did not find his blood, DNA, or fingerprints at the crime scene, so he was ultimately eliminated as a suspect. Authorities had no other leads, so they then decided to focus on Sarah. They found out that she was taking antidepressants, Her relatives also noticed her unusual behavior after the murders. They said that she hadn't shown any grief since the tragedy. She wanted to see her friends. She even had the time to get her nails done. So Sarah became the prime suspect. Later, police found a latex glove and a brown leather glove wrapped in a pink bathrobe in the trash. This bathrobe belonged to Sarah. In it, they found tiny specks of blood splatter from the victims. Finally, they examined the latex glove and found her DNA on it. Sarah Johnson was then arrested 
Authorities found out that the motive was to get her parents' life insurance. She wanted to get married to Santos and provide for him, and with that inheritance, she thought they would be set for life. Sarah was convicted on first-degree murder and sentenced to two life terms without parole, and, as a result, will spend the rest of her life in prison. This incident shows us the extent of infatuation and how it can take away one's logic and reasoning. It certainly is shocking to witness how a young girl would do anything for her first love, even at the expense of her parents' own lives. Number three, Hugh Pete Bondurant Jr. and Kenneth Pat Bondurant. The Bondurant twins, Pete and Pat, had always been thought of as eccentric. They were known for their short-fused tempers and love for fighting. By the time they were in seventh grade, both of them weighed more than 250 pounds, making them a formidable presence. When they reached adulthood, they became known as guys who loved being thought of as eccentric. They were also known to be generous souls. But in 1975, things changed as their first violent crime erupted. At that time, Pete was living in Cincinnati with two women and two men. One night, the women went out to buy cigarettes. When they returned, Pete met them in the doorway with a bloody knife. He then told them, you're next. Disbelieving, they pushed past him and into the house. What they found was beyond what they could imagine. The two men who lived at the apartment had been stabbed multiple times. One of them, who had been stabbed over 40 times with a screwdriver, later died of his injuries. Pete was convicted of the murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. However, he got out after only five years, mostly because he was an out-of-state inmate and there was little room in the prisons. Soon after that, the twins started living together at Pat's farmhouse. There, they partied hard and dealt every kind of drug imaginable. They soon attracted a Manson-like following of people who went to their home to get high. And then, tragedy struck again in May of 1986. 24-year-old Gwen Duggar decided to spend the night at the twins' farmhouse. She told her brother to go on home ahead of her, as she would hang out with the guys, but she was never seen again. Immediately, the community suspected the Bondurants of being responsible for her disappearance. However, a body was never found, and so they could not be pinned for it. A few months later, in October, Pat's colleague, Ronnie Gaines, visited the Bondurant home for a night of cards. During the party, Pat accused him of stealing his wallet, and after that, Gaines was never seen again, and his house suddenly burned down. Pat told authorities that his alibi was girlfriend Terry Lynn Clark. So in November, investigators set up an interview with her. However, just two days before that scheduled interview, Clark was found dead in the Bondurant farmhouse. The twins called the police and told them she had died in her sleep due to an overdose. 
Investigators were unable to pin that murder on the young men as well. Three years passed with no new leads that could pin the duo to the murders. However, in late 1989, Pat's estranged wife, Denise, appeared on the scene and testified against them. Coincidentally, she was dating a law enforcement officer at the time. What she said on the witness stand was harrowing. She told the court exactly what had happened to Gwen Duggar. According to her, the twins brutally raped and tortured the woman. Then, they hit her on the head with a heavy axe, killing her. They also put two bullets from a 22 pistol in her head. After that, they burned her body over the course of three nights and buried her ashes around their property. The twins were sentenced to prison in 1990. Pat is serving life in jail, while Pete, who finished his 25-year sentence in 2016, has since been released. Number 2. Alan Davis In Florida, the default method of execution for convicts who have received the death penalty is death by lethal injection. However, it wasn't always so. Back in the day, executions in the state were done using a rickety old electric chair handmade by inmates in 1923. With its use, Florida gained infamy for its many cruel botched attempts to end the lives of convicted criminals. One of these convicts was Alan Davis, whose macabre execution finally put an end to electric chairs being used as the default mode of punishment by the state. Alan Davis was no innocent man. In fact, he was found guilty for murdering a pregnant woman and her two young daughters, and he was sentenced to death with his execution date set for July 8, 1999. Davis ordered a little feast for his last meal. He had a lobster tail, half a loaf of garlic bread, six ounces of fried clams, half a pound of shrimp, fried potatoes, and 32 ounces of Barks root beer. Afterwards, the 300-pound man was led to the death chamber and strapped onto the controversial old electric chair. A citizen, who had been paid $150 to do the job, flipped the switch that sent electricity through the convict's body, and that was when the horror began. According to witnesses, Davis's body jolted backwards, pushing him against the chair's restraints. This gave onlookers a clear view of his face underneath the black hood that was supposed to conceal it. What they saw was horribly contorted features and skin that had turned a violent purple. As they watched, blood began to seep from his nose, traveling down the wide leather band over his mouth and turning his white shirt red. After the electricity had been switched off, Davis was seen to take 10 long breaths before finally going still. After the cruel execution, even advocates for the death penalty in Florida began to change their minds about the efficiency of the electric chair. Debates and rallies sprang up, forcing the governor to put a hold on such executions. Alan Davis was the last person to be executed in an electric chair by default. Today, the chair still exists, but only as an option to prisoners who have their reservations on lethal injection. Number 1. 
Sonia and Frank Gregorio. Christmas Day is the biggest and most celebrated holiday in the Philippines. It's a time when family and friends get together with great joy, a time for smile and laughter. But what if, just days before this auspicious day, tragedy befalls your family? On the cloudy afternoon of December 20th, 2020, the Gregorio family from a small neighborhood in Tarlac, Philippines, was having a normal afternoon. What they didn't expect was that a tragedy was coming that would shake the whole country. 25-year-old Frank Gregorio was outside his home setting up Boga, an improvised noisemaker cannon. Apparently, the use of this noisemaker was banned by the government, and so this made their neighbor, police officer Jonel Nuesca, decide to confront him. The officer's visit escalated into a heated argument, and one of the Gregorios decided to take a video when they noticed that the officer was drunk. Moments later, as the argument worsened, the officer then threatened to arrest Frank and bring him into custody. Frank's mother, Sonia, who was 55 years old, immediately intervened when the cop tried to arrest her son. It didn't make the situation any better, and instead, things got worse. Then, in a shocking move, the officer raised his gun and shot both mother and son in the head, and they died instantly. In the recorded video, Nuesca, accompanied by his daughter, is seen rushing to the Gregorio's house holding the boga he confiscated. The mother is also seen hugging her son, trying to stop him from arguing while preventing the police officer from arresting him. Tension is high, and crying and begging can be heard in the background. Moments later, Nuesca's daughter intervenes, taking the side of her father and shouting, My father is a policeman, when the mother yells back, I don't care. A few seconds later, Nuesca, who appears to be annoyed, shoots the mother and son in the head at point-blank range. The cop continues to shoot the mother in the head even after she falls to the ground. The incident happened at 5.10 p.m. and was reported to the police station at 5.30. About an hour later, at 6.20 p.m., Nuesca surrendered to the authorities. The video of the shooting incident blew up on social media the next day. Many people, including celebrities and government officials, condemned the killing of the mother and son and expressed their sympathy to the victims. The Philippine National Police charged Nuesca with double murder, and they have said that they will do everything in their power to punish him. In the eyes of the public, cops are people who offer safety and protection, and that's why it's so surprising when one turns out to be the perpetrator of a vicious, unexpected double murder. So that's it for this episode of The Best of Patreon Volume 2. If you'd like to support, then click the link on the screen or in the description below. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you soon.